Hi, Shloka. Welcome to Network Capital. We are really excited to host you uh, on our career podcast. Here we try and understand why people do what they do, and we try and reach out to people working in different sectors. You are, uh, uh, you have your career has spanned journalism, writing, public policy, and uh, climate change. And I don't even know. I mean, I can't cover everything in one go. But essentially, we would love to understand how you got here and uh, what drives you. So, could you tell us who you are and uh, what you do today? Hi, Utkarsh. Thank you so much for asking me to be a part of uh, this awesome podcast. Um, I've been an avid listener for a very long time, and so it feels unusual to be on this end. But um, I'm excited, and um, I'm I'm excited to sort of you know share some of my journey with you all today. Um, so I think your question was why it is that I do what I do. Yeah, but basically we can start by understanding. what do you do today oh what do i do today sure so um i actually am at, i'm the head of sustainability um at the tata trust um which means i look after the organization's climate change energy and environment work i am also the executive director of the india climate collaborative which is a collaborative platform as the name suggests but it's really an inclusive community um you know to sort of build the climate ecosystem uh, in india so we consist of philanthropies of uh, the private sector um, you know government agencies uh, communities um, and implementers as well as of course the technical experts from your scientists um, onwards who are all uh, working on climate change in india uh, the idea was to really elevate their voices to scale the solution providers as opposed to the solution and to increase the quantum of funding around climate change in india um you recently published an article and you talked about the importance of having a climate lens in all that we do agriculture uh, skilling could you explain what you meant by that of course so i think um you know the answer to that question is is a little longer um because it has to go back to why i started doing what i started doing which is yeah. um i when i came on board to set up the sustainability portfolio at the tata trust two years ago we um like most of indian philanthropy did not have a focus on climate change we were working in areas that were adjacencies um and when i say adjacencies i mean areas that were related to climate change but not climate change focused so agriculture wash sanitation uh, livelihoods um you know your classic sort of um uh philanthropic areas of concern which were linked to poverty alleviation i think the difference is realizing very quickly that no pathway to sustainable development is possible anymore unless you include climate change um it was a realization that our um you know chairman mr tata had quite early on and with that um came the sort of me or the imperative really to build in um climate change into everything that we do because we weren't going to improve the overall quality of life of an individual if we were not factoring in climate change like for instance you can improve the subsistence yield of a farmer by 100% but are you really going to um change his quality of life if you're not taking into account extreme weather events um and how that's going to affect his crops if you're not doing future projectioning or risk proofing your portfolios how are you fundamentally going to change another human being's um life 
And so that was sort of the, the thinking behind the sustainability portfolio and why we set up. When that happened and when I came on board um, to do that, I realized very, very quickly that we were uh, not alone in our challenges um, to sort of working in this space and that less than 2% of philanthropic funding in India was going towards climate change. Everyone seemed to be working in areas that were related to, but they were not entering that space. And so the question for me became, why is that the case? What are the entry barriers to working on climate change in India? Um, and what can we do to remove them? And so I conducted a needs assessment for a very long time initially. Where Which I year are we talking about? Uh, when did you conduct this needs assessment? So I started, um, this was towards the end of 2017. Oh, I see. And um, have you know conducted it for over 18 months and continue to be sort of doing the landscape diagnostic it's one that we're always updating um, but it really was going in person on the ground meeting with foundation CEOs and heads um, you know the heads of CSR organizations and just understanding as well as going on the ground and seeing their programs and understanding why it is that they weren't funding climate change um, and the entry barriers were very interesting actually so number one was obviously a lack of technical expertise and you know a shortfall in the talent pool around climate change in India. This is this is true as a whole, not just for the philanthropic sector, but for most sectors in the country. The second is um, there's a big sort of challenge within film, the philanthropic sector in India, uh, you know, from moving from a charity or a subsidy mindset to one of strategic philanthropy. How do you get a sector to move more into areas around field building and ecosystem building when it's still so transactional, right? Like you put your money in, you expect to see impact right, uh, right away and you want to see a tangible impact, you know? The third was really collaboration was a big challenge and it was a quick realization that everyone was working in their silos, um, focused on their own work. You know, most philanthropists and industrialists will uh, set up their own rating foundations rather than sort of drive money to others in the sector. And that's because there's a huge trust deficit. So how do you get them to collaborate and come together? How do you get them to, you know, how do you create a collaboration where the costs um, are lower than sort of, sorry, the costs don't exceed the benefits of collaboration. And then finally, how do you break down the grand intangible that is climate change? And this again, none of these problems are sort of particular to philanthropy. They exist across the board uh, within India. They exist across the board globally. But in India, of course, it's far more acute because the people who are being impacted on the ground are just, you know, so poor and so vulnerable. And uh, the numbers are so immense. Um, but therein, as I always say, also lies the opportunity. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But, but just to sort of say what we realized was there were all these different barriers um, and there was really need to sort of coalesce the sector and bring people together in, on, in a collaborative to really drive, um, you know, the opportunities forward to create a culture where you were de-risking a lot of sort of the, the um, you know, the initiatives that we needed them to take uh, to move forward because they could do so collectively, right? And of course, the greatest benefit of collective action is scale. Um, you know, the, the way you're really going to deal with systemic issues today is by getting people to address things at scale. Um, so that was where it all began. And that is where I am today. So I'm happy to say that the India Climate Collaborative is going to launch in January. Um, we have 
you know, uh, a plethora of Indian uh, philanthropies and institutions backing it, uh, you know, including corporate philanthropies and CSRs. The Mahendra Group is the chair. The Tata Trusts are obviously backing it uh, and part of the core group, as is, you know, Rohini Nalikini philanthropies, etc. We also have a host of international philanthropies who are supporting the ICC. Um, because of course there's, there's a great number of international philanthropies who work in India and see India as perhaps the most important country when it comes to fighting climate change, not just for you know, its own people um, and the effects it's likely to have on its own citizens, but obviously of course, because of the powerful role that um, the Indian, uh, you know, uh, that India will play in, in defining the global narrative around climate change. And it's not going to be a story around um, or just a story that is only focused on emissions. It's definitely going to be about a human impact story and it's going to be around India's development priorities. That does sound really exciting. I had a couple of questions on the points you mentioned. Let's discuss the return on investment a little bit. So you have done investing in the past. So um, uh, investing in women, if I'm not mistaken, um, explain what was different about uh, the investing landscape and the mindset of people when it came to climate change. You mentioned that uh, people were hesitant, but isn't the impact investing premised on the fact that you may not get returns immediately? Um, what am I missing here? So I think the, the, you know, it's funny, but the, the irony of ironies is that the sectors that are supposed to take greater risk are yeah. often the ones that are the most risk averse. And I think there are reasons for this. And I, and I, and I say this about philanthropy and I say this about impact investing is that I, I really question whether we are building cultures of innovation um, or driving innovation as much as we should. I think the hesitancy comes from the fact that we um, deal with stakeholders who are really um, the bottom of the pyramid in terms of you know, how vulnerable they are. And so the hesitation is obviously, it, it's understandable. You know, risk is, is, is a very different sort of, um, has a very different set of outcomes if were, or consequences were it to, were it to sort of uh, fail. Um, and I think that is really what holds people back. I also think there is a degree of, um, you know, a, a sense of uh, very much a top-down approach, both in these, in both these, I mean, I, I'm clubbing impact investing and philanthropy together. So, so just bear with me on that because I know it's a vast generalization. Um, but overall, what I have seen from both the impact investing side and, and the philanthropy side is that there is this notion of still treating our core stakeholders, not as citizens, which is what they are, but as beneficiaries. Right. And that's a real culture shift that needs to take place. And what ends up happening is you are very much divorced from the realities on the ground, even though you're supposed to be perhaps the most connected to. And again, it, it, keep in mind, it's a vast generalization. There are people who are doing absolutely amazing work on both ends of the spectrum, both in impact investing and, and as well as philanthropy. And they're really reimagining what, you know, the work of philanthropy and, and impact investing should be and how we could sort of solve some of these problems. But those are really the inherent challenges. So we may say what we, what we think it should be, 
um, or what we really do believe, but are we actually doing that? I think that's where there's a big gap. Got it. You also spoke about uh, the collaboration challenge that exists in this space. Um, to the outside, it might seem like this is this is a problem that cannot be solved by one organization. So if you don't collaborate, you basically you can't solve it. So did it surprise you that such a mindset existed? And how did you approach uh, this challenging mindset uh, situation that you had at hand once you joined? Yeah, no, you know, it's interesting, but collaboration, and I think this is a really important point that I learned only in doing, um, was that collaboration is not just an end goal. It is very much a means, or it is a an organizing tool that, you know, we started to employ uh, when creating the ICC. And that is really that we, um, we realized that like, for instance, right what i've just spoken about that the philanthropists we were dealing with were tackling a variety of more immediate problems like securing water you know basic livelihoods etc for the most part climate change was always an intangible that they they were aware of but it was it was something very hard to access and so in our initial sort of attempts at, at establishing collaboration we didn't find much interest you know people sort of acknowledged that they needed to work in this space, but they didn't know what to do and what that could be. Um, and how on earth were they gonna to come together to do it? Um, I realized very quickly that, you know, methods and actually reasoning was not what was going to sort of engage these leaders. Um, we also know that for instance, climate science has been clear for decades. Uh, we also know that the dangers of, you know, the fact that it will, the greatest dangers will be to India's poorest. This has also been known for a very long time. Um, but it did, I think what we did realize very quickly on what would change things was the power of co-creation. And so um, asking every individual donor and member of this collaborative, you know, uh, what are their sort of interests, their priorities? What does success mean to them? What are their values and challenges in the work that they do? and then established a sense of trust. And with that, a sense of sort of shared purpose, that was the way in which collaboration actually came about far more organically um, because we just became facilitators um, on their own journey and a journey that they could take together. Understood. And uh, you feel that this design principle is gonna uh, stand the test of time at ICC, at least that's your hope. Um, anything like in, in come January, how can uh, non-experts participate in the collective? Because I think uh, just organizations collaborating may not be enough. You need all constituents to collaborate, government, uh, civic organizations, people who actually do not, may not know enough about uh, the specter of climate change. How are you thinking about that? So absolutely. So I think the idea is, um, I think if you ask me what the goals of the ICC are, they are threefold. One is to increase engagement on climate change in India. The second is to drive funding um, around climate change in India. And the third is to increase the efficiencies around funding in climate change in India. You're absolutely right. This is not um, a problem philanthropies are going to solve for themselves and by themselves. It's about increasing the number of people in the room and getting the right people in the right rooms at the right time to have the right conversation. 
Um, and hence it's a platform because it is going to involve very much um, bringing in all funders, not just philanthropies, but the government in terms of government agencies, it will involve the private sector, it's going to involve impact investors. You're going to need technical experts that are not just scientists, but other institutions who are working on this problem. Um, and you are going to obviously require, uh, you know, the implementers, um, as in the people who are working on the ground, as well as, of course, communities who are being affected by climate change. And I'm not talking about distinct rural communities, but urban and, um, you know, across all income strata uh, has to be a part of this conversation. And that is really what the ICC will do. It will both curate as well as sort of propose um, secure and matchmake opportunities. Um, it will also seek to do funding investments of its own in the sector. It will not be an implementer, but it really is hoping to do uh, the, the most essential job, which is driving that conversation forward and then ensuring that we are increasing the quantum of funding um, within India. And I think it's, it's crucial to say not just the quantum of funding coming in from you know, international sources into India, whether it is on the climate finance side, you know, into our sort of uh, private sector or financial markets. And of course, then you know, on the philanthropic side or public sector funding, um, but I really mean it from the perspective of driving more Indian sources and Indian funding to invest in climate change because we have to own this problem and we will uh, come up with the solutions. In fact, one of the most heartening things, because I always get asked this question from friends and family and, and people who know me is, you know, you work on climate change day in and day out. How does it not make you sort of miserable because you're dealing with this existential crisis? And I always say it's really the fact that, you know, um, there are so many amazing, incredible people and individuals and organizations who already have the solutions and are working on this problem. And the extent of innovation that we see on the ground, it's just that there are tremendous gaps in sort of bringing those people together with the right funding sources. And of course, marrying that to policy implementation and agenda. So it's really a, a systemic failure. It's not one of um, a lack of solutions or opportunities to, to solve the problem before us. And, and finally, I would say it's also a communication failure. Um, you mentioned that I was a journalist. And I do think that you know it's something that sits with me every day is because we don't we're not telling the story of climate change in the way that we need to tell it. We're not telling it in a way that we can move it from fact to people's hearts and minds and to sort of inbuild it into intuition. You know, the greatest thing about genetics and uh, fields like astronomy is that they moved from fact to intuition. It was, you know, you can't see your DNA, but you, you could easily sort of, and, and we know for a fact that it exists, um, but how do you intuitively sort of come to a place where you, you know that to be a truth on a level where you don't have to be convinced of it? You know, we know that the earth is an interconnected system. Uh, that's a fact. But why aren't we sort of imbibing that in an intuitive way so that we actually change um, our behaviors and our mindsets and, and the way we do business? Uh, you've just mentioned so many really interesting points. I'm going to stick on this for a bit. Uh, what are you nervous about? Uh, it comes the ICC comes uh, uh, and blossoms the way you'd imagined. What are some things that you uh, you feel could 
be repeated, past mistakes manifesting differently? Um, I, I, you know, I, I started laughing when you asked me this question and I interrupted because I was going to say besides the planet imploding. Um, <laughs> it's like, you know, the funny thing is it's not even, it's not even about the planet imploding. I think the nervousness is really about the fact that the, the human species is going to go extinct and we, we keep forgetting that it's a question of our own survival. It's not about the planet. The planet will survive. It will regenerate. But for more from a from a sort of organizational perspective. Exactly. Um, My and, question and, was on the collaboration challenges, the mindset issues. You know, really the greatest uh, risk or challenge I suspect. Firstly, I mean, I, I will be very frank and just say based on how I'm built, I, I don't actually suspect that um, failure is not an option. So, you know, if something doesn't work out, we will go back to the drawing board and figure it out. Um, and I think that's how we've been operating till date. So I don't really see um, something not working out as a, as a dead end. It's not, it's not a place to stop. It's, a, it's another place to begin. Um, the second thing is, if you asked me what would be a real challenge, perhaps, something that we would genuinely you know, have to really sort of introspect on, I think that is if we cannot convince um, people in India to sort of fund uh, the projects and uh, the spaces that we need to drive that funding towards, right? So that's the goal here. So if if we aren't able to actually get them to effectively get behind the, you know, the need to not only fund climate change, but to do so in a way that is not just within their own narrow scope of work, but actually is contributing to that larger picture, which means getting out of their wheelhouse and not just focusing on, okay, I'm going to do my, you know, uh, small agriculture project here. It's, you know, doing what you do, but doing it more sustainably, doing it better, and then making sure that you're driving funding really where it needs to go, not just in the spaces that we are so used to funding, like, you know, that we have been for, for eons. Um, that would be a big problem if we couldn't make that case. That's so well said. Um, and such an urgent situation that failure is not an option. I think that's the attitude all stakeholders must adopt. Now let's come to the communication challenge. Why is it that uh, uh, we have failed as as a country to some extent, as a as a world, of course, and uh, even young people who are relatively less skeptical of climate change? What's What's one thing that we sh we all should know, but we don't about the communication failure? So I think the communication failure, the biggest problem of it has been that we have focused on the facts. As I said earlier, we have just relied on the facts that, oh, you know, once this information is publicly available, everyone will change and do the right thing. I think it's not taken into account that actually the oldest technology in the world um, really is, is stories. Um, that's the oldest human technology that we've ever had. And we're not implementing it in a way to really think about what is it the stories, what are the stories we are currently saying about ourselves or telling ourselves? And how is it that we want to use stories to change the way we think about the world? Um, but it's going to have to go straight to hearts and minds. And, and that is, again, where communication is failing. Um, so number one is just in, in the way in which we are communicating itself, right? Moving from hard facts to sort of more 
um, meaningful stories about who we are and how and the world we want to see and the world that we currently live in. Um, the the second thing I would say that's really important on the communication piece is not actually equipping uh, people to be better storytellers. So scientists, for instance, I think a lot of the work that we want to do with the ICC as well is help professionals in this space become better storytellers because the experts are the ones who know what, what they are talking about, but they're not able to communicate it to um, the people that need to hear it. So very often what you will hear is climate change is just this technical, boring, scientific, like cut off thing. It doesn't really relate to, you know, what I want to do. And um, it has no relation to like, you know, uh, it doesn't empower me in any way to, to even be able to affect this problem or this change. And I can't even understand it. So let alone, you know, figuring out how I can go about sort of helping or working in the space. I think something that the David Attenboroughs, you know, who of course, I think have communicated so beautifully and effectively in the work that they do is really showcasing the beauty of, um, of the planet around us. And that's really the third point, which is not focusing always on the fear and the doom and gloom story. There's been like study after study that has found the more you sort of focus on aspects that are going to cause concern or anxiety, the more people shut down. And there is sort of this, this um, pervasive, not only feeling, but uh, psychologists have started terming it uh, as eco-grief that the world is facing, where people are shutting down and going into grief over the fact that the planet is changing around them. You know, younger generations, especially who have the most to lose, are tremendously worried about the future that they are going to inherit, where we're not just going to have redrawn national national lines or borders. You're going to have different, like, to, like the, the geography of the planet is going to change because it's going to be, a lot of it is going to be underwater. Other places will be simply uninhabitable. So how are we even preparing for this? And I think, again, coming back to David Attenborough, you know, who's been a big, big sort of um, source of inspiration for me, we need to inspire people to make that change. I think the only thing I would say as if I had to scaring them uh, as opposed to terrifying them into sort of uh, inaction. That, does that work at all? Uh, has it worked? Is there any data to suggest that it has worked? Uh, if anything, the basic research that I did, it seemed to annoy people for some reason, this uh, um, the climate terror uh, messaging. Is that true? I'm not sure. Absolutely. So, so the climate terror side of it is what I agree with you on. I'm saying we shouldn't be pushing yeah. um, more fear because it's going to cause more inaction. Um, you know, there's a lot of studies out there actually around sustainable behavior change and how do we get people to sort of, you know, just make the changes that they need to make at home, like stop using plastics, switch to a vegan lifestyle, use more of public transport. It may seem small, but obviously all of this adds up to so much if we start doing it on an individual basis and just checking our own carbon footprints and how much, you know, how much of the earth's natural resources are we using? Just starting there. And what do you really need? The studies have shown time and again that you can actually get people to change behavior um, if the, the sort of supply were to exist in terms of alternate, uh, you know, uh, substitutes like they would switch to those and we've done these studies in India as well um, people have openly said within India that they would move to sort of more sustainable lifestyles if they were if they were able to sort of uh, supplement that with alternatives 
So I think one is the market needs to sort of step up and provide those alternatives in a way that, you know, to, to not just sort of um, bring down the cost of technology as, 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 that, as is really important, obviously, or just the cost of products per se, but also the, you have to bring down the costs of financing those, right? So that it makes sense on both ends. It makes sense for companies to sort of shift production lines and it makes sense for consumers to sort of purchase those products. Like why is it that LED lighting is still so expensive for households? You have to change those, um, those, those, those costs and bring those down. That's like something that has to happen. But I think if we are able to make those shifts, you will find people will shift their own, um, the way they choose to live in, in terms of the options that they that they will choose if, if those options were equally sort of, you know, available and accessible. So that's the good news. Um, the other thing that I would say is, you know, which I was saying earlier about David Attenborough is like inspiring people is really the way forward. And it's about showcasing what it is that we love about the world around us and what it brings us as opposed to moving with fear. Love over fear anytime. Um, the only criticism that I have, if any, of, of like what David Attenborough and his ilk have done, which is in showcasing the beauty of the world, like very often in these documentaries, they don't bring it down to what you per se as an individual can, can do to affect change and how you as an individual are impacting the planet. And I think that is perhaps where we have to move that conversation from inspiration around how much we love the world around us to inspiring us to actually now act. Got it, Shloka. Um, you clearly have a very busy day managing so many things. How how does an average 24-hour uh, day in on a Wednesday look like for you? <laughs> oh God, that's like um, that. That is a scary question because my team will have a very different answer, and as as will I. Um, you know, but it's 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 something we joke about all the time. Is just like how crazy my days are. Um, because it is, it is both, um, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time in, in meetings, obviously, with meeting various like stakeholders and people within the climate change community and outside of it in India. And that is from across all sectors. So we, you know, talk to government, private sector, etc. The idea is to always keep a flow of sort of uh, thought leadership and, and partnership going. Um, there's also just the business of building an organization and a startup, which I think a lot of people in your community will be very familiar with and right. how absolutely harrowing that can be exciting and harrowing because you are dealing with everything from compliances to, um, you know, the basics of putting together budgets and, and cash flows and all of that. There's recruitment that's going on at the same time. Um, so we are actively looking for people to join the ICC. And then, of course, there's there's my day job, which is also, uh, you know, split into uh, working um, at the Tata Trust and managing an entire sustainability portfolio. And we do grant making as well as programs. So there's a lot of time that goes into, um, yeah, just just sort of, you know, managing those pieces. Um, so it's it's a full day, but I will say it is it is a very meaningful day. Um, I often sort of come back uh, late in the evening, absolutely exhausted. But um, you know, I'm a very like physically active person, so I think just I, I make sure my days are bookended by by either exercise or or something enjoyable because you need to switch off um, yeah. as much as you can, especially when you're dealing with subject matter that is as heavy as we are. 
Yeah, it was so well said. I'm just going to switch gears, Shloka, and talk about uh, how life after Kennedy School. So you 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 graduated uh, uh, in 13, right, from the Kennedy School? Yes. So what? How did? How were the two years there? And when you graduated, what were you thinking? Um, what were the choices, career choices that you evaluated? And um, pre Tata Trust, what has your trajectory been like? So it's been an interesting one. Um, it it has been a varied one. Um, I think you know the way I like to think about it is actually like the the leaders of the future really are going to need to be people with more and more diverse backgrounds and more sort of diverse interests and and people who can think with both left brain and right brain and i think um one of the things that i used to be you know sort of anxious about earlier was the fact that um my career did sort of represent a myriad of things and not sort of always one um, you know, logical linear flow. And I think today that's something that I look back on and I'm really grateful for because dealing with something like climate change, for instance, or any great systemic issue, uh, you need a, a huge and varied toolkit at your disposal. And so post Kennedy, um, I actually came back and I worked as a campaign manager for Mira Sanyal for the Ahmadmi Party in Bombay. And I did that for about eight months. Uh, and, you know, I obviously just graduated from policy school. Obama had just won in 20, the end of 2012. He was just reelected. I graduated a few months later and it was the Lok Sabha elections coming up in India. And there was no question that I wanted to sort of um, do some grassroots work in, in building a political campaign and, and, you know, very much an idealistic sort of perspective at that time. I joined the campaign, learned a great deal from grassroots canvassing never done it before you know bombay is a constituency uh, south bombay itself is a constituency of about 22 lakh people and uh, it's a very very varied one from dharavi to you know the the the, the high rise flats of malamba hill um and uh, realized very quickly that like you know being in politics um was not necessarily the place that i felt i would have the most impact that I could see myself being someone who perhaps supported policy and agenda from the outside, rather than needing to be inside at full time. And um, moved from there very quickly into sort of thinking about how I might do that. Um, for me, the sources of capital have always been, you know, if you have control over sources of capital or you can direct that funding or somehow strategically align it uh, for the better good, then I think that's a great way in which to start sort of influencing policy and agenda. And so I, I started on the impact investment side and I built uh, my own gender lens investment fund, which, um, you know, at the time was, I think, really ahead of its time because it was just when gender lens was taking off and we had a women only investor model and we were going to invest in women impact businesses. And we raised about five odd million and then realized very quickly that, uh, it was not the right business model at the time that we should have built ourselves as an NBFC um, because what we were finding was a lot more requests for debt, um, you know, working capital loans. And we built ourselves on an equity model. And so, you know, close Why that down. That? Why did you do that? Build ourselves on an equity model? Yeah. Um, because we just felt like 
ownership was something that we wanted to provide our retail investors and women were the retail investors and we wanted them to be on the boards of these companies and so um the drive was always to make sure that representation was not just on one end i.e. not just on the entrepreneurial side but it was also on the side of you know building out the boards and and the company ownership and direction um unfortunately as i said the need on the ground was a different one and so we decided to pause it and i continue to be an angel investor in a in a number of social enterprises um but then really was sort of thinking about my next steps and i have always been an avid wildlife person so my dad's side of the family are all wildlife conservationists uh, and photographers including my dad uh, my brother was an environmentalist and nature for me had always been something that but i just for- want to say at this moment i just loved your tribute to your brother i mean those who know uh, will appreciate that but uh, just thank you for doing that Oh thank you that's really kind of you Utkarsh that's very very kind of you to say yeah so my my brother passed away like 6 years ago and um as i said he was a big big environmentalist and and someone who really lived large live life quite largely and um you know one of the ways in which initially when he passed away and i think this is true for anyone who suffers from grief or loss um you you try and find that person you know in in whatever or connect back to them in whatever ways you can and for me nature was the ultimate connector not just in terms of um bringing me back to him um but also bringing me back to myself and it was a place where i i remember just like going out and being out in the wild in the outdoors um and i and i am a very outdoorsy person was just a place where things life became came into perspective again and um you know obviously the issues around climate change were increasing at the same time it was becoming a greater and greater sort of um you know uh problem that was increasing in everyone's consciousness at least it has been over the last 6 years and so it you know i really started thinking very seriously about getting into the space um from a personal but also from a from a you know professional um uh, prerogative and then this opportunity to set up the sustainability portfolio at the tata trust came about and it felt like you know not only was it intellectually challenging because how do you build a startup within a 127 year old institution but then how do you do one that actually moves the needle on climate change especially when no one else is focusing on it that is really uh, a a tough question i'm glad that you know you took upon such a uh such a big hairy challenge as they say i want to ask you a little more about your journey pre kennedy school now so um you said that now looking back a lot of things uh, make sense because you have different mental models to approach the problem but while you were going through the early stages of your career what was the thesis then and uh, was kennedy school you always had had some had it in mind or it emerged as a function of your experiences so um you know it's a great question utkarsh um kennedy was harvard well let me put it this way graduate school was always in my mind and i was a journalist and i was convinced for the longest time that i was going to go and do a degree in journalism at columbia and um very quickly once you become a journalist and you get into the field and you spend a significant amount of time there and this is true for most uh vocations or or careers um the advice that i got was to get a general management degree and not 
a specific, um, not one that is specific to sort of journalism or, or you know, a, a specific profession, unless it's one that is easily uh, translatable, like law, for instance, is, right? Like you can still do law and it can be used across a variety of professions. But the idea always was, look, when you stop being a journalist, uh, one day, what are you going to do? Like, what are you really going to be skilled to do? Um, and, uh, you know, that was always in my mind. And then the second thing that became very apparent to me when doing journalism was that I was quite frustrated with uh, feeling like I wasn't doing more. So I've always felt information is one of perhaps the most um, or access to information is one of the greatest public services that exists. And I really, really, really believe in, in the freedom of information. Um, and so there was always a bent towards sort of wanting to do something in the public service space. Um, it just, I think, evolved over time from, okay, access to information is one part of it, but then how are we actually using information to change the um, the paradigm, so to speak. And that's where my interest in policy grew. I'd started covering social enterprise and financial inclusion and microfinance. And this is back in the heydays when SKS, you know, the largest microfinance in India at the time in 2010 was going for an IPO. And I'd been covering that for years. And so it became very obvious to me that if we just tweaked policies around financial inclusion in India, there was scope to do so much more in terms of reaching people and, and uh, you know, really upending markets as they existed. And so it was very clear once I joined sort of uh, Forbes and I was writing about this space that I wanted to sort of uh, move more closely into the policy side of it. Um, of course, I, I joke with all my friends that the one thing that policy school did for me was uh, the moment I was inside Harvard, I was like, I never want to write another policy memo again <laughs> in my life. Um, and I think, again, we, we forget that the value of graduate school is also not just about directing you towards what you want to do, but it's also very much about, um, you know, a process of uh, elimination around what you don't want to do. And that's as powerful and as important. What's the one advice you would give to people who are interested in careers in the policy space? I would say really... Um, Talk to people who are already in the space, always. I think that's my number one advice to people. You know, from the outset, it can always seem very, um, uh, you know, glamorous or it can have facets to it that perhaps you haven't, you know, countered um, or, 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 sorry, encountered and counted in. And I think, um, you know, there is so much to be said for the process of just sitting with people and gathering data based on their own life and work experiences. And so I would always say, number one, go to people who are already in the space, find out what it is really like. And the question that you just asked me earlier is the most pertinent. What is your day-to-day -day actually like and what does it involve? And think about whether you, that is a space where you will as you know, think you can have the most impact uh, in and of yourself. I think, again, sometimes we think about our careers on the basis of like what we think we should be doing um, in terms of roles, but we don't think about it in terms of like um, what it is that like will actually bring out the best in us and what we have the most to offer and where we can learn and grow the most. We think about it in terms of titles. We think about it in terms of paychecks. We think about it in terms of, you know, organizational mandates and things which are all important, 
but it's not really what's going to make um, you not make you do the best that you can do. It's such precious advice. My last question to you, Shloka, is on is on mentors and people who have shaped you, your professional trajectory so far. Uh, how have you gone about uh, finding them, or have you stumbled on them, and how have you maintained the mentor-mentee relationship if you have such? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I, I um, there are amazing people that I've met in my life through my work, and I'm very lucky to count on a huge number of people as mentors. Um, you know, in the space, not just of climate change, but of, of you know, a variety of different fields. And I think again, that's another piece of advice I would give you um, as someone who's just starting out is like, or in in any new arena, is like gather your mentors, you know, um, and find people who are going to mentor you. But I would say the most influential in my life has have actually been my family. And um, specifically, I would say my uh, my uncle and my mother and my father. And, my, you know, my uncle is, is a businessman himself um, and he runs a, a very large conglomerate and um, he has, you know, continues to be someone I pester to this day. And, and, you know, he mentors me quite, quite deeply, actually. And I think from him, I have learned the ability to, to see the big picture, um, to sort of not just, you know, focus in on what you are doing and sort of have your head in the sand, but really like pulling back and be able, the ability to like build vision into what you are doing and what you hope to achieve and what you hope to accomplish. So I get the big picture perspective from him. Um, from my mom, actually, she's been a career professional for about 30 years and she works in the same organization. Um, she's someone who I think has just taught me the art of fairness and fairness, not just in terms of, you know, how you deal with your team and your employees and your, and within your business and your partners, but fairness to yourself, um, you know, in terms of, uh, not being overly self-critical, but really learning to be a more balanced, uh, leader. And finally, my dad, I think, is just resilient. You know, he's a he's a wonderful Punjabi man who um, I think has you know built his own business from scratch. And I think he's faced so much strife uh, in his in his work life. Um, but I have always seen him stand his ground and never give up. And so I think the combination of all three uh, is something that I I feel very blessed with. And we feel very blessed that you've shared your. Uh your career with us. This goes out to thousands of people in different parts of the world. You'll be surprised at how many questions people have about building a meaningful career in the policy and or sustainability space and how many questions come about connecting the dots. So thank you very much for your, uh, you know, thought provoking action oriented advice that's rooted in, in true experience. So we appreciate that very much. Thank you, Utkarsh, and thanks for asking me again. And I, I would just say, if anybody's interested in a career in sustainability or climate change, feel free to you know, reach out to me anytime. I'm more than happy to guide them through it. And um, of course, there'll always be opportunities available on my end as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. We actually look forward to hosting you for a masterclass uh, very soon. And um, it'll be exciting. I, I think lots of people will learn from you. And uh, we are stoked to set it up. Thanks, Utkarsh. I'll try not to depress everyone within the first five minutes about climate change. <laughs> I promise to keep it. I promise to keep it, you know, positive. Uh, <laughs> that that I that I that much I can do.
Um, if I know yeah. you, at all, it will be evidence based regardless. And then the people will be <laughs> excited or not uh, about it. Thanks, Loka. This will be published very soon. Re appreciate your time and uh, see you soon. Bye bye. Thanks, Utkarsh. Bye.